You're listening to the Guest Lecture Podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Stan Hoover, a counselor educator at Messiah College, and this podcast is an extension of my classroom. Each episode features a guest lecturer who's an expert on topics that my students and I are interested in, mostly related to counseling, trauma, and spirituality. Joining us today is Dr. John Norcross, Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Scranton and board-certified clinical psychologist. He's a world-renowned researcher, author of over 400 publications, and co-author or editor of dozens of books, including Psychotherapy Relationships That Work, Systems of Psychotherapy, The Handbook of Psychotherapy Integration, and the highly regarded self-help book, Changeology. He's a fellow of the American Psychological Association, past president of the Divisions of Psychotherapy and Clinical Psychology, and the winner of numerous awards for his research and teaching. It was such a privilege to talk with John. I have admired his work since I was an undergrad psych major and continue to benefit from it today as a counselor and counselor educator. In this conversation, we talk about a recent article he co-authored with Bruce Wampold that was very critical of treatment guidelines for trauma and PTSD that minimize or flat-out ignore the importance of the therapeutic relationship. Because as he says, based on decades of research, it's that relationship that heals. Here's the interview. Good morning, Stan. Hey, John, can you hear me? I can hear and see you. Can you see me? Uh, I can hear you. I cannot see you. Hmm. Uh, Let me... Am I there? I can see you now, yeah. All right. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to meet with me this morning. Before we get started, I just wanted to share, uh, when I was in my doc program, I was doing some adjunct teaching, and one of the first courses I taught was a counseling theories course. And what wasn't thrilled about the textbook that was used in that course, and they said, well, you know, you can, you can pick whatever textbook you'd like. And uh, I came across the systems of psychotherapy text that you wrote with James Prochaska and adopted that for the course and I have been using it ever since. Oh, sweet. We appreciate that. And I hope if you and your students ever find points that require revision or elaboration, we're happy to receive them. That's how the book continues to improve over what? The, the nine editions now. Wow. Yeah. Nine. Good. Well, I will certainly uh, keep that in mind and pass All that right. Yeah, just tell them to shoot an email. In fact, I usually have them dig into the uh, chapter um, that's closest to their heart or they know the most about and say, so what's a little off? What do you think's missing? You know, keeping in mind, we can't devote the entire book to your favorite theory. Sure. Uh, tell us what's a little different. Um, and, and you may notice or you might not. Uh, every couple editions, we change a few facts, like did Freud commit suicide? Was it physician-assisted suicide? Uh, people still want to argue uh, those things. Yeah, well, I'm keeping the book fresh, but also it was so engaging, um, just the, the care <clears throat> the care with which you wrote, and uh, also the, the warmth and the humor as well really stood out to me. And I thought the same thing in reading this article that I'd like to like to discuss with you today. Uh, that you wrote with Bruce Wampold on the uh, APA, the tragedy of the APA yes. practice uh, guidelines. 
And uh, the feedback I get from my students as well is that they're, they're not used to reading uh, articles like this that are, that are, as I said, very engaging, um, very provocative and compelling. And so Thank I'm excited to, excited to get to, to chat with you about this. Um, so maybe just give us some background. I know a lot of your research over the years has focused on theories uh, of psychotherapy, a lot about the therapeutic relationship uh, as well. What was it that, that led you to look specifically at, at trauma uh, and, how, and how it's treated? Well, it's true that most of my research focuses on psychotherapy and behavior change generally, not on particular disorders. Um, Bruce Wampold and I were led to look specifically at trauma because of the misguided efforts of the American Psychological Association's clinical practice guidelines on PTSD in adults. Um, it was an invited article um, in a special issue commissioned by the two co-chairs of the actual practice guideline who were quite dissatisfied with the product. Hmm. Um, that practice guideline tried to advance a biomedical model for psychotherapy that almost exclusively focused on treatment methods for particular disorders, in this case, PTSD for adults. It's very clear to anyone who looks dispassionately at the literature that that research evidence, plus clinical expertise and patient preferences, and that's the necessary composition of evidence-based practice, should be emphasizing instead other things, specifically the therapy relationship, responsiveness, and, and individual therapist effects, all of which independently account for more patient improvement than particular treatment methods. Mm -hmm. So I was frustrated, aghast, that our own APA guidelines are both bad science and bad practice. Mm -hmm. And what was it that those guidelines were actually trying to, trying to do or trying to achieve? Well, it's a noble intention. Um, the ABA guidelines are trying to decipher what works and what doesn't. And indeed, our patients deserve that, family, practitioners. So as we explained in the article, we're, we're all about infusing practice with the best research, expertise, and patient input. But APA simply didn't do it. They continued to focus and look vainly for differences in effectiveness in different treatment methods, therapy A versus therapy B versus therapy C's. They did so knowing in advance that the randomized clinical trials on psychotherapy for trauma and the multiple meta-analyses based on those produced hardly any evidence for meaningful outcome differences. And that pattern's now existed for well over 20 years. So APA spends a small fortune on staff time in an external analysis, looking for some evidence of what we'll call differential efficacy. That is, therapy A works better than therapy B. Certainly, they knew or should have known that we didn't need another meta-analysis showing everything worked the same. And then at the end of that, they conclude four strongly recommended therapies and three conditionally recommended therapies and the only difference in that recommendation resides only in the number of studies conducted on each treatment. So if numbers are good, more numbers must prove better. So at the risk of stating the obvious, 
more studies don't mean more effectiveness. It just means there's been more research conducted. So it's incredibly dubious uh, reasoning. Practitioners, including me, seek what's effective for their patients, not what is most studied. <laughs> so it's been a dismal failure um, and, and leads to virtually nothing that's going to help practitioners. Now, you mentioned the research on this PTSD in particular. Um, it, these aren't new findings, right? No. And I, in preparing for this, I, I know there was a recent study that came out just a month ago, uh, Maria Steenkamp looked at uh, first-line psychotherapies for combat-related PTSD, and, and she, her, her results were consistent with everything that, that you've said. There's not one particular approach to treating trauma that seems to be more effective uh, than, than any other. And I've read some response to that, and one of them is, well, you know, that, that, that may be, but there, there are some first-line treatments that we think we should maybe try first, just like you would try if someone was diagnosed with, with cancer. Um, you would try certain things, and if that doesn't work, maybe try something else. Uh, and, and my response to that is, well, uh, psychotherapy is not like treating cancer. And as you said, this is that distinction between a biomedical model versus what, what you're recommending here. Yes. Um, and I understand why people desire to allude to the desired specificity of psychotherapy. But it's not specific that way. It's not a particular chemical. When you think about the active ingredients of psychotherapy, the patient's contribution, the therapeutic relationship, the person of the therapist, the flexibility and the personalization of care, that does not resemble biomedic biomedical interventions. It's not a pill. It's not surgery. We don't have that level of specificity. Now, you, you mentioned the, the therapeutic relationship right there. Uh, I, I want to quote a line from the article. You, you said that relationship is at the heart of treating trauma. What do you mean by that exactly? And, and, and what do you not mean by that? What I mean by that is relational damage is the core of trauma. Virtually every trauma involves a relational betrayal and aggression. That's the very nature of, of trauma. Now, there are some exceptions of that, such as natural disasters. But overwhelmingly, abuse, war, sexual assault, these are relational damage. And the therapeutic relationship as, is at the core of healing trauma. I've been treating various forms of trauma for 40 plus years. If I've learned anything, it's the relationship heals. Now, we don't have to be extreme and say the treatment method is indifferent. Treatment methods certainly help. They can be personalized. I, as you've already noted, I, I co-author psychotherapy text. I believe in methods. Um, but the method is not the message in treating trauma. The message is, I'm here, I'm witnessing, I'm validating. You have ways of coping. I have ways of helping you. It's not the particular treatment method that makes the huge difference. Decades of research have been showing that. And yet, Stan, we estimate that 90% of federal grants, outcome studies, treatment guidelines, continuing education on trauma, focus on particular treatment methods, which account for less of the reason why people succeed. It really is just a topsy-turvy, ridiculous situation. And it's no wonder that practitioners protest. What the hell? Mm -hmm. this, 
this, this is a huge disconnect between the research community and the practice community. There are dozens of books, hundreds of articles devoted to the therapeutic relationship in trauma. Um, we recently reviewed uh, this research with our friend Laura Brown. 19 studies have shown the therapy relationship in psychological treatment for traumatized adults. The vast majority find the alliance works, empathy works, and well beyond anything else there. And when one goes beyond the diagnosis-specific focus of the APA guideline, there's thousands of rigorous empirical studies on the relation of the therapeutic relationship to psychotherapy outcome. So in my workshops, I, I put up a, um, a chart. So let's just take the example, say, a strong alliance versus a weak alliance in the treatment of trauma, or high empathy versus low empathy. Those make profound differences in who stays in therapy, who benefits from therapy, who becomes healthy. Whereas treatment A versus treatment B and versus treatment C makes practically no difference. Now, that doesn't mean treatment method is immaterial, but the particular treatment method doesn't make a difference. You know, for years we were saying exposure, it's the treatment of choice. You know, Bruce Wampold and other people have now conducted five studies on presence-centered therapy for trauma. That's a treatment designed intentionally to omit components of exposure, cognitive restructuring. And that present-centered therapy has been shown to be just as effective as all the recommended therapies. So they actually remove those components from the treatment to test. Yes. Yeah. So when you, in dismantling studies, where you remove what's the alleged effective components, that may be exposure, cognitive restructuring, focus on the trauma itself. Those dismantling studies that remove the ingredients of treatment, it does not change the effectiveness. Mm -hmm. What the hell are we doing mm -hmm. with, with treatment guidelines that are focusing only on the methods? Mm -hmm. So once you go down this rabbit hole of the medical model, specific treatments for particular disorders, this is where you go virtually nowhere. And that's why Bruce Wampold and I find this APA guideline seriously incomplete, clinically suspect. It's, it's a tragedy in our subtitle. And moreover, we believe it constituted a missed opportunity to inclusively identify what actually helps heal trauma. Which is why you're frustrated and which is why a lot of my students and supervisees are confused. Sure. It's almost like they're operating under the assumption where unless they learn this particular treatment or unless they become certified, right, with this particular uh, credential, um, they're going to be practicing incompetently and won't be. Won't be exactly. And I like to ask everyone, have you seen any evidence that securing that credential, whether you're an EMDR certified or you've done cognitive processing or prolonged exposure. You've seen any evidence that that leads to increased success. And at that point, everyone looks at their feet embarrassed because there's no evidence for that. Now, notice, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think everyone should learn one research-supported treatment. Mm -hmm. But the belief that you have to learn two or three or stop doing A because you think B is better, there's simply no evidence for that. Bonafide established psychotherapies work equally well.
you touched on some. Are, are there other relational factors that are associated with positive treatment outcomes that might be especially relevant for trauma therapists? Sure. But first off, I would not delimit or restrict the question to a particular disorder, be it uh, trauma therapist, eating disorder, yeah. therapist, depression specialist. Um, so I'll, I'll answer your question, but it's a bit like the APA guidelines in subscribing to the disorder first priority and then unwittingly elevating the medical model. Um, so it's, it's fine to, of course, look at the, the relationship in trauma, but there's no reason to believe that the relationship working with trauma is much different than working with anything else. But to answer your question directly. It's a thing to avoid. It's such a, it's, <laughs> right. it's a, well, what works for whom, right? The first yeah. thing we do is what's the disorder? I, I always giggle a little when I go to uh, Grand Rounds. The first thing that comes up is, so the patient presents with and here's the disorder. No matter how many times we know the research evidence says it's frequently more important to know the person who has the disorder than the disorder the person has, People want to start with the disorder, um, but it's, it's about the whole person, not just their disorders. But we recently completed a, a large series of meta-analyses in uh, the third edition of Psychotherapy Relationships That Work. So uh, the series of meta-analyses and then expert panels, um, we concluded that seven elements of the relationship are demonstrably effective. Uh, they're the alliance, the therapeutic or working alliance, collaboration in group therapy, it would be cohesion, collecting and delivering client feedback, also known as routine outcome monitoring, of course, empathy, goal consensus, and then positive regard, affirmation, validation, depending what you want to call that. There's an additional seven uh, relationship elements determined by meta-analysis in the expert panel to be effective, but a little less um, convincingly so. So we call these the probably effective elements. That would be uh, therapist congruence or genuineness, the real relationship, a new one, um, emotional expression. Uh, we all sort of suspected that, you know, the best sessions have a little affect involved, both from the therapist and the patient. They're involved. They're not dry academic exercises. Cultivating positive expectations, promoting treatment credibility, repairing alliance ruptures, and then managing countertransference. So those 14 very solidly um, relate to, predict, and probably contribute to therapy effectiveness in, in virtually all disorders. Um, we conducted a series of moderator analyses they all seem to work equally well across disorders with just a, a few changes. And those changes, by the way, are not trauma. Um, it's in addictions where some of them don't just work quite as powerfully. Now, do you find, because I think most you know, clinicians would agree with what you've said. I mean, the relationship really is what matters most in effective therapy. Uh, and yet, maybe in practice seem to take that for granted where, where they're not um, focusing on cultivating those types of relationships as much in their actual day-to-day -day, day -day work. They do for several reasons. First, it's the tragedy of the commons. No one owns the relationship. Um, so as a result, while we may believe it's the, it is 
one of, or perhaps the most uh, potent contributions to uh, counseling or psychotherapy success, people don't get excited about it, right? You don't go to a conference to learn empathy. We just figure everyone knows it. No one quite owns it. Um, and secondly, it gets a bad vibe, much like your students would say in supervision, I need to know this technique. And even though I could show them lots of research, knowing that particular method is not probably going to make you a more effective therapist, particularly compared to relationship or responsiveness, um, there's, there's a bit of anxiety um, as a trainee that you want to have a method so that you're credible, you're professional, you're following the best guidelines. It's ironic the very best guidelines are cultivate and maintain that therapeutic relationship first and foremost. So considering what you've written about therapist responsiveness and tailoring treatment to the client, how would you respond to, to a student or a clinician who maybe asks a question like the one um, you were alluding to a minute ago, you know, what, what therapy is best for, for PTSD? What would you say? I'd first say, Stan, you did it again. You jumped to diagnosis. There's practically no evidence to support that one treatment method works better than another. But again, in, in the polarized climate of therapy wars, you know, is it the relationship or the treatment method? I, I don't want to go extreme and say it's, it's one or the other. I would say a research-based and research-supported treatment method would work best. And then I would respond by saying several things. One, the search for matching the best treatment method to the specific disorder has been a dismal failure. This is not medicine. We don't have that level of specificity. It's gone the way of the dodo bird. All bona fide therapies work about equally effective on average for uh, PTSD for adults. Second, I'd say that means we need to personalize care to the individual patients. Group averages of effectiveness are but a crude start. We need to discover collaboratively with patients what works for them. That match, that personalization, will usually be to the patient's transdiagnostic features. As we said earlier, it's more important to know the person who has the disorder than the disorder the person has. The second uh, volume of that psychotherapy relationships that work were a series of meta-analyses on What's the effective way to personalize, individualize, or responsive? So it's not necessarily to trauma, though sometimes that obviously works, but it's way more powerful, way more powerful to match to the patient's preferences. So I've been fortunate to be trained in prolonged exposure and EMDR and cognitive processing therapy and a bit on present-centered therapy. I would explain them to patients and say, which of these sounds would work best for you? Mm -hmm. By doing so, by matching to their preferences, just not treatment methods, but how often they want to meet, um, the type of relationship we have, whether they want to consider medication and the like, we decrease the probability of dropout by almost half. That's how powerful that is. Or match to their stages of change. If a traumatized patient comes in still in contemplation, they're going to need lots of support, stabilization. They're not ready to jump right into exposure. Geez, that just makes no sense. 
um, or the reactance level. We know some people are going to be more resistant and we need to emphasize their self-control or their culture, cultural accommodation works. So accommodating or adapting to any of those transdiagnostic features is going to be way more important than just looking at trauma. Finally, you ask what treatment works best. I believe the science argues you should ask which relationship and therapist works best. I think that's, that's probably uh, one of the biggest takeaways, I think, from the bulk of this research. And you mentioned, too, when you do tailor treatment in, in those ways where you're being sensitive and responsive to those transdiagnostic characteristics, you mentioned that clients will stay in therapy, right? That the dropout won't be as great, which dropout is one of the huge problems that we see in a lot of these randomized clinical trials that are being cited in the, in the problematic lines of research that you're, you're pointing out here. Precisely because they are structured. They're of fixed duration. You're typically assigned a therapist. Uh, you're told here is the treatment you've been randomly assigned to. Mm -hmm. So immediately you disrespect clients. You're saying you're getting 10 sessions, whether you need eight or 20. You're saying, well, maybe that would be a good fit with that therapist. Maybe you want someone of a different culture, a little more directive, someone of a particular ethnicity or sexual orientation. So randomized clinical trials are almost per force by design, unempathic, non-responsive. And hence problematic. Yeah. One of the findings that you wrote on that, that was most interesting to me is that, you know, some therapists just seem to get better outcomes than others. They seem to be more effective. There's, you know, the literature on the super shrinks. Uh, what would you recommend to any therapist who just wants to improve their effectiveness? What are some of the first steps that they could take? Well, it is, as you know, Stan, well-established. Some therapists consistently achieve better outcomes with their patients than other therapists. Um, that, by the way, occurs, as Bruce Wampold has demonstrated, both in clinical trials, where you have to adhere to a particular treatment protocol, as well as routine practice settings where you're free to switch things up. So the therapist effects suggest, rather than asking what's the best treatment, you might ask what's the best therapist, as we discussed a moment ago. I think um, the research and experience suggest at least four things uh, to accelerate your therapist effects. The first we've already discussed, and that is relationship skills. Time and time again, the research argues for the centrality of relationship factors and when you look and try to identify these best therapists, um, they indeed um, have far higher scores on relationship uh, factors, whether that's empathy, alliance, collaboration, flexibility, and the like. In addition to cultivating relationship skills, second, it's responsiveness or a flexible interpersonal style. Um, my first clinical supervisor, the late Arnold Lazarus of multimodal therapy fame, used to say the best therapists were authentic chameleons. Um, they didn't have to be the same with each client. They would back off a little with some. They'd be more humorous with others. They were fabulous at um, reading what a particular patient would respond best to. Third, um, outcome monitoring. The best therapists routinely, systematically check in with their patients, not just about their symptom scores, but how they believe therapy is going, how they're relating to the therapist, 
Uh, they're having that potentially awkward, how are we doing? I practice this all the time um, in my workshops. And therapists said, you know, I never really knew I could ask so directly. Mm. Um, and by the way, for trainees, I recommend they start by using one of the dozen or so outcome monitoring instruments. Uh, it's a little easier for them. So, you know, that could be the, um, the, the Miller and Duncan PCOMs. It could be Mike Lambert's outcome questionnaire, the core. There's lots of them. Um, and that also has the advantage of comparing them to standardized um, scores of other patients. But after you do this for a while, um, asking directly, how are we doing? How are you doing? Even if we're doing great, is there anything we could do more or less of? We're trying to personalize this to you. Um, outcome monitoring makes a, a big difference. And finally, the newer research that fascinates me is on deliberate practice. That is, therapists and counselors should be finding areas they're not particularly talented in and following one of these structured protocols for garnering deliberate practice. Um, it's still a little early to get too excited about it, uh, but there's now two or three studies uh, that suggest deliberate practice improves, which of course accords with everything we know about uh, expert functioning in, every, in any area. It's not simply experience. Uh, as I frequently explain it to my own students, uh, my grandmother was a licensed driver for about 60 years, and she was the worst driver I've ever seen. So it's not experience alone. It's the deliberate practice on where you need some assistance. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of deliberate practice really focuses on kind of working at the edge of your, of your ability and, and looking at weaknesses when things don't go as expected and trying to figure mm -hmm. out what went on there, which, um, yeah, can be difficult, especially for, for students and, and, and newer clinicians to really embrace this idea of coming to supervision and showing your worst tape versus yes. your best tape. Your best, yes. Yeah. The stuff you try to hide from your supervisor. That's yeah. what I, wanna, I want to see. Um, and it's that sort of vulnerability and openness, um, what I sometimes refer to as the data are always friendly, mm -hmm. uh, even if you don't like them. Uh, that probably, that, that openness, that responsiveness is probably what's at the heart of the therapist effects. Um, it's just not a matter of being committed uh, to improving your skills. It's a matter of, of being open. It's, it's the old story of if, if your own healthcare provider is not open to you getting a second opinion, run away permanently from that person. Yeah, you want someone who's flexible, responsive, is oriented toward your care, not his or her narcissism. Yeah, this, this whole idea of therapeutic flexibility and in, in, in some ways almost becoming a different therapist for each, for each patient is, is really intriguing and really a different way than I think a lot of our, our training models. Um, it is indeed. And in fact, that's the title of my workshop. Um, is it? <laughs> Maybe I, I had that in my subconscious. Well, it's okay. A new therapy for each patient. That's essentially what we become. Uh, and by the way, if you don't do this efficiently, it could become overwhelming. Sure. Right? It's just, but for example, um, taking seriously preferences 
Mick Cooper and I have developed a short 18-item inventory of patient preferences for psychotherapy. It's in the public uh, sphere through Creative Commons, so anybody can use it. Just, just look it up. Uh, it's called the CNIP, Cooper Norcross Inventory of Preferences. When we give that, it's 18 quick items. It's hand-scorable. It's right there. Uh, we are amazed how this has taken off because people are just saying, yes, of course I want to individualize. Everybody understands we should be doing that. But how do I do so efficiently? Mm -hmm. I already have so much paperwork, diagnosis, intake right. forms. How can I just get to the core of what's important to a patient? So we say there's probably three or four of these transdiagnostic features that everybody can learn quite readily assess them quickly in session, and then whenever possible, match to it. And, and in fact, that's my uh, most recent book coming out just uh, in a few months called Personalizing Psychotherapy. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, well, I will Thank look you. forward to that for sure. In reading this article, one of the things that, uh, gosh, just really kind of stands out to me or confirms for me is that there is still so much misunderstanding about what evidence-based practice actually is. And I experience this when I go to, to counseling conferences and in the, in the circles that I move in, um, this is just really more evident now than, than ever. Uh, does that resonate with you? Am I, am I accurate in, in that perspective? You are. I say, sweet Jesus, yes. There is so much confusion in this area. And as you know, I've co-authored and co-edited a couple books on what evidence-based practice is supposed to be. Yeah. You know, and, and here is here's the irony. Defined correctly, evidence-based practice is a practitioner's friend. When I sit and explain, everyone says, that's exactly what we do. Mm -hmm. And I say, of course it is. But the term has been commandeered and misused, so most practitioners run away from it. But correctly defined, and by the way, I, I, I should back up a little and say, it's defined this way everywhere starting in Great Britain in the Cochrane collaboration, moving to McMaster in medicine, McMaster University in Canada. Mm -hmm. It's always been defined by the three-legged stool or the three evidentiary sources. First, best available research. Second, clinical expertise. And third, the patient's preferences, cultures, and values. It's always been defined that way. It requires the three components. All three are necessary. If you only have research support, an important component, probably the most important component for some people, it is not, by definition, evidence-based practice. And yet you see it written, talked about all the time, here's the evidence-based practice. And they have not involved the clinician, they have not involved the patient. Right. By the way, that happened on this APA guideline on trauma. Mm -hmm. They only looked at the research evidence. They didn't ask, hey, does anyone have access to this? What's the dropout rate, by the way, with exposure therapy? It turns out it's incredibly high. Virtually no one gets through multiple sessions. EMDR, you don't have to do homework uh, and expose yourself at home. EMDR uh, is quicker on average by one and a half sessions, and it's far better tolerated by patients. And yet they put it in the secondary level because there's just fewer studies. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of craziness when you don't go back and look at what evidence-based practice is. 
So it's also deeply ironic, those most loudly touting the value of evidence-based practice are intentionally misdefining the term. Now, you've mentioned being frustrated uh, by, these, by these guidelines, and I've certainly heard that uh, in your voice as you've talked about this. What's the response uh, to, to the article then? Uh, very positive indeed. Mm -hmm. um, after it was published, um, so despite my um, huge differences um, in perspective on this, I have several uh, professional friends who are on the guideline committee. Mm -hmm. um, I sent this to them. They corrected a few errors in fact. Um, then they immediately invited me to address the uh, steering committee of the APA clinical practice. There's many people um, on that steering committee that would like to redress these problems. So that was very gratifying. Um, the journal in which this article appeared um, awarded our article uh, the most valuable paper of last year, mm -hmm. uh, which was quite gratifying. I've received lots and lots of emails, particularly from practitioners, essentially saying, thank you, John. Sometimes I think I just must be crazy. Right. Uh, but when you say it's more about the relationship, responsiveness or flexibility, therapist effects, and that I'm also careful not to throw out the treatment method, but to say, look, it's one of many. Thank you. You, you get me. I don't feel so alone in the wilderness and feel so betrayed by my own professional association. Right. That's been immensely gratifying to Bruce Wampold and myself. And so, again, you mentioned um, kind of feeling a, a combination of concern, but also hopefulness. Are you, are you more hopeful now than you were a year or so ago when this was published? You know, it, Stan, it just depends on which day you catch me. <laughs> if I'm out there giving workshops or doing supervision, as I did yesterday, I am hopeful because I see students immediately saying, all right, yeah, you know, I assess preferences. And my patient lit up and said, no one's ever asked me about my preferences. Mm. Or someone else comes up to me during a workshop and say, you know, I've used your stages of change for Jim Prochowski and Carlo Di Clemente for 20 years. It's revolutionized how I think and I respond to patients, you know, stage matching. And then I say, yeah, most of the clinical world gets it. But then if I open a journal and I see yet another randomized clinical trials and 90% of the articles comparing treatment A to treatment B, oh, Lord, I just kind of sigh and close it. Um, so it really depends which day. In general, I'm pretty much optimistic and resilient. When I see my students, practitioners, we know this works. But, you know, the funding contingencies are about the medical model. Very difficult to receive any substantial funding on the relationship, responsiveness, or anything else. They just say, diagnose a patient, test treatment A versus treatment B, even though we know after the dust settles and we control for research or allegiance, both of those treatment methods are going to work the same. So I guess in a, in a dream world, if you were going to open up a journal, um, what, what study would you hope to see? I would hope to see uh, randomized clinical trials for patients' preferences, um, stages of change in psychotherapy, more cultural accommodation. Although in truth now, 
our meta-analysis have found more than a hundred randomized clinical controls, uh, controlled trials for cultural accommodation. These things are now facts. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to open up a journal and see people getting good funding for studies on what materially impact the outcomes of psychotherapy. And look at their optimal combinations. I like to see good studies on how we can better train our students, how we can cultivate these therapist effects. Is it teaching more relationship skills? Is it teaching more responsivity and flexibility? Is it more deliberate practice? That's going to create a generation of better therapists, not treatment A versus treatment B. Well, in, in addition to better training for therapists, um, one of the things that I'm also concerned about, and one of the things that I know you're, you're interested in too, is, is this idea of self-care um, and, and being sure that you know, we're not just um, developing the technical skills and competence of clinicians, but also making sure that they're, they're sustained right, throughout, yes. throughout their careers. And I know you've written a book uh, on, on this as well. Closing here, any tips or encouragements uh, for therapists um, that would help to sustain them uh, over the long haul? Oh, Stan, there's so much I could say. Um, you know, when you write a book, all the chapters start <laughs> flashing at me. What would I say in closing in a few moments? I'll say this. Self-care is not a professional luxury. It's an ethical imperative. It's a moral injunction. Um, you know, we have lots of expressions from this, like you can't drink from an empty cup, or if you don't, if you're not full, how can you give things to your clients? Mm -hmm. um, I think it needs to begin in graduate school. Uh, we, we select for bright, driven, ambitious people, and I'm sure that characterizes both of us. Mm -hmm. um, we also need to be modeling and insisting on self-care and graduate training. Um, less judgmental, more supportive, establishing communities of support among faculty and students. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with a plea just because I've done lots of research on the therapist's personal therapy. I hope um, every mental health professional in training secures at least one personal therapy. Um, that's a transformative experience that demonstrates in their own life how the power of counseling and psychotherapy uh, can be manifest. Um, I know I've had two of those wonderful experiences in my life. Um, and, and so much comes from that. We, we begin to model our own therapist. We learn what it is to sit and, and be nurtured. We learn about boundaries and countertransference. Um, and of course, training programs can help organize that for lower cost. Um, so in terms of self-care, that need not only be for trainees. As Freud wrote uh, 100 years ago, every analyst should periodically return into personal treatment at intervals of five or so years without shame. That's the important part, without shame and without stigma. When you care for yourself, you're caring the best for your patients. Well, and if the person or the therapist and the therapeutic relationship is really what matters most, then attending to, to ourselves in that kind of way is, is essential. Indeed.
John, thank you so much for, for your time. And um, you've been so generous and I, I really do appreciate that. Uh, if listeners want to, to learn more about you and, and your work, what's the best way for them to, to do that? I know you've mentioned several titles that uh, I'll be sure to, to link to, but how else would you want them to, to keep up with you? Uh, my website at the University of Scranton has books, articles, videos, and the like. So if you just Google John C. Norcross, it, the first thing that usually comes up is my website at the University of Scranton. There's... You can also go to Amazon, just put in my names, find some books. And if you're looking for particular articles, uh, go to ResearchGate and just request it from me and I'll be happy to send it to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And thank you, time. Stan. It was, it was my pleasure. And thank you for the excellent questions and preparation. This first season of the podcast is supported by the Sawyer Digital Proficiencies Initiative at Messiah College. If you want to learn more about Messiah, you can visit us online at messiah.edu. Thanks for listening. Class dismissed.